welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. So, a couple of days ago, I, like I'm sure many millions of people, either tuned into the TV or looked on Twitter or whatever social media, and you saw images of Notre Dame Cathedral on fire. And when I saw this, this just really, really blew my mind, and it hit me in my heart or in my gut at a very deep level. Um, I'll just say, whatever your views on religion you can appreciate Notre Dame for its architecture and its cultural um, contribution, and, which is alone not purely from Christianity, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more here. But I uh, visited Notre Dame myself and my wife and our friend Amy in... Uh, right around Christmas time of 20, uh, 2011 when we visited uh, Paris. And it was truly, the high, for me, it was the highlight of Paris. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great things in Paris. You have a great time at the Louvre, and there's some really amazing things there. But uh, the going through Notre Dame was, was really amazing. And if you go there armed... And, and, and by that, I mean, if you go there with some knowledge, just some basic knowledge of about the architecture and the uh, numerology, the mathematics and, and the history of its construction, which takes place like over, you know, like 500 years or something, um, then you, you can see a world that not everyone else there sees. Most of the people that are going there are going to see, oh, whatever, it's architecture. And then there's other people that are going there out of religious fervor, and they're moved by the uh, images of, of Jesus and the crucifixion, and, and there's something to that. But then there's another world beyond all of that. And that world is now completely lost. First of all, it was never fully understood in our modern era. There's huge mysteries remaining in in uh, Notre Dame, and I, re I I even saw one of the the news uh, reels about this. Even uh, acknowledge that that there's things about the architecture in there that are not understood by uh, modern architects and builders, and that is all now completely lost. It is another black hole in history. It is another gap where a higher kind of knowledge has fallen down a black hole and is lost forever. So what I'd like to do is read for you a section from uh, P.D. Yuspensky's great book, A New Model of the Universe. 
Um, and this is an essay he wrote based upon his own visit to and research of Notre Dame. Notre Dame de Paris. Many strange thoughts have always been evoked in me by the view from the top of the towers of Notre Dame. How many centuries have passed beneath these towers? How many changes and how few changes? A small medieval town surrounded by fields, vineyards, and woods. A growing Paris, which several times outgrows its walls. The Paris of the last centuries, which changes its face every 50 years, as Victor Hugo remarked. And the people, forever going somewhere past these towers, forever hurrying somewhere, and always remaining where they were, seeing nothing, noticing nothing, always the same people. And the towers, always the same, with the same gargoyles looking on at this town, which is forever changing, forever disappearing, and yet always remaining the same. Here two lines in the life of humanity are clearly seen. One is the line of the life of these people below, and the other, the line of the life of those who built Notre Dame. And looking down from these towers, you feel that the real history of humanity, the history worth speaking of, is the history of people who built Notre Dame and not that of those below. And you understand that these are two quite different histories. One history passes by in full view and strictly speaking is the history of crime. For if there were no crimes, there would be no history. All the most important turning points and stages of this history are marked by crimes, murders, acts of violence, robberies, wars, rebellions, massacres, tortures, executions, fathers murdering children, children murdering fathers, brothers murdering one another, husbands murdering wives, wives murdering husbands, kings massacring subjects, subjects assassinating kings. This is one history, the history which everybody knows, the history which is taught in schools. The other history is the history which is known to very few. For the majority, it is not seen at all behind the history of crime. But what is created by this hidden history exists long afterwards, sometimes for many centuries, as does Notre Dame. The visible history, the history proceeding on the surface, the history of crime attributes to itself what the hidden history has created. But actually, the visible history is always deceived by what the hidden history has created. So much has been written about the Cathedral of Notre Dame and so little is actually known about it. One who has never tried to find out anything about it for himself or to make something out of the available material would never believe how little is in fact known about the building of the cathedral. It took many years to build. The dates when it was begun and when it was finished are known. The bishops who, in one way or another, contributed to this construction are also known. And so are the popes and kings of that time. But nothing has remained concerning the builders themselves, with the exception of names, and even that seldom. 
and no facts have remained concerning the schools which stood behind all that was created by that strange period which began about the year 1000 and lasted for about four centuries. It is known that there existed schools of builders. Of course they had to exist, for every master worked and ordinarily lived with his pupils. In this way, painters worked. In this way, sculptors worked. In this way, naturally, architects worked. But behind these individual schools stood other institutions of very complex origin. And these were not merely architectural schools or schools of masons. The building of cathedrals was part of a colossal and cleverly devised plan which permitted the existence of entirely free philosophical and psychological schools in the rude, absurd, cruel, superstitious, bigoted, and scholastic Middle Ages. These schools have left us an immense heritage, almost all which we have already wasted without understanding its meaning and value. These schools, which built the Gothic cathedrals, concealed themselves so well that traces of them can now be found only by those who already know that such schools must have existed. Certainly the Catholic Church of the 11th and 12th centuries, which already used the torture and stake for heretics and strangled all free thought, did not build Notre Dame. There is not the slightest doubt that for a time the church was made an instrument for the preservation and propagation of the ideas of true Christianity, that is, of true religion or true knowledge, which were absolutely foreign to it. And there is nothing improbable in the fact that the whole scheme of the building of cathedrals and of the organization of schools under cover of this building activity was created because of the growing heretic mania in the Catholic Church and because the Church was rapidly losing those qualities which had made it a refuge for knowledge. By the end of the first thousand years of the Christian era, monasteries had gathered all the science, all the knowledge of that time. But the legislation of the hunting and prosecution of heretics and the approach of the Inquisition made it impossible for knowledge to reside in monasteries. There was then found, or to speak more accurately, created for this knowledge a new and convenient refuge. The knowledge left the monasteries and passed into architectural schools, schools of masons, the style later called Gothic, and at the time known as the new or modern, of which the characteristic feature was the pointed arch, was accepted as the distinctive sign of the schools. The schools within presented a complex organization and were divided into different degrees. This means that in every school of masons, where all the sciences necessary for architects were taught, there were inner schools in which the true meaning of religious allegories and symbols was explained, and in which was studied esoteric philosophy, or the science of the relations between God, man, and the universe. That is, the very magic 
for a mere thought of which people were put on the track and burnt at the stake. The schools lasted up to the Renaissance, when the existence of secular science became possible. The new science, carried away by the novelty of free thought and free investigation, very soon forgot its origin and beginning, and forgot also the role of the Gothic cathedrals in the preservation and successive transmission of knowledge. But Notre Dame has remained, and to this day guards and shows us the ideas of the schools and the ideas of the true Freemasons. It is known that Notre Dame, at least in its exterior, is at present nearer to what it was originally than it has been during the past three centuries. After an incalculable number of ignorant, pious alterations, after the storm of revolution which destroyed what had survived these alterations, Notre Dame was restored in the second part of the 19th century by a man who had a deep understanding of its idea. But what has remained of the really old and what is new, it is difficult to say. Not for lack of historical data, but because the new is often, in fact, the old. For instance, is the tall, slender, pierced spire over the eastern part of the cathedral, from which the twelve apostles, preceded by the apocalyptic beasts, are descending to the four corners of the world. The old spire was demolished in 1787. What we now see is a structure of the 19th century, and together with the figures of the apostle is the work of Wallet-le-Duc, the restorer of the cathedral during the Second Empire. But not even Wallet-le-Duc could create the view from the big towers over the city, including the spire and the apostles. He could not create the whole scenic effect, which was undoubtedly a part of the builder's design. The spire with the apostles is an inseparable part of this view. You stand on the top of one of the big towers and look towards the east, the city, the houses, the river, the bridges, the tiny, microscopic people. And not one of these people sees the spire or sees the teachers descending upon the earth preceded by the apocalyptic beasts. This is quite natural because from there, from the earth, it is difficult to distinguish them. If you go there to the embankment of the Zion, to the bridge, the apostles will appear from there almost as small as the people appear from here. And they will merge into the details of the roof of the cathedral. They can be seen only if one knows of their existence. But who cares to know? And the gargoyles, they're regarded either simply as an adornment or as individual creations of different artists at different times. In fact, however, they are one of the most important features of the builder's design. This design was very complex. To be more exact, it is not even one design, but several designs completing one another. The builders wished to put all their knowledge, all their ideas, into Notre Dame. You find their mathematics, astronomy, 
some very strange ideas of biology or evolution in the stone bushes on which human heads grow, on the balustrade of the large platform under the flying buttresses. The gargoyles and other figures of Notre Dame transmit to us the psychological ideas of its builders, chiefly the idea of the complexity of the soul. These figures are the soul of Notre Dame, its different eyes, pensive, melancholy, watching, derisive, malignant, absorbed in themselves, devouring something, looking intensely into a distance invisible to us, as does the strange woman in the headdress of a nun, which can be seen above the capitals of the columns of a small turret high up on the south side of the cathedral. The gargoyles and all the other figures of Notre Dame possess one very strange property. Beside them, people cannot be drawn, painted, or photographed. Beside them, people appear dead, expressionless stone images. It is difficult to explain these eyes of Notre Dame. They must be felt, and they can be felt. But it is necessary to choose the time when Paris becomes quiet. This happens before daybreak, when it is not yet quite light, but when it is already possible to distinguish some of these strange beings sleeping above. I remember such a night. It was before the war. I was making a short stay in Paris on the way to India and was wondering about the town for the last time. It was already growing light and the air was becoming cold. The moon moved swiftly among the clouds. I walked around the whole cathedral. The huge massive towers stood as though on a, the alert, but I already understood their secret and I knew that I was taking with me a firm conviction which nothing could shake, that this exists. That is, that there is another history apart from the history of crime, and that there is another thought which created Notre Dame and its figures. I was going to search for other traces of this thought, and I was sure that I should find them. Eight years passed before I saw Notre Dame again. These were the years of almost unprecedented commotion and destruction. And it seemed to me that something had changed in Notre Dame, as though it was beginning to have a presentiment of its approaching end. During these years, which have written such brilliant pages into the history of crime, bombs dropped over Notre Dame, shells burst, and it was only by accident that Notre Dame did not share the fate of that wonderful fairy tale of the 12th century Rheims Cathedral, which perished a victim of progress and civilization. When I went up to the tower and again saw the descending apostles, I was struck by the vainness and almost complete uselessness of attempts to teach people something they have no desire whatever to know. And again, as many times before, I could find only one argument against this, namely that perhaps the aim both of the teachings of the apostles and of the construction of Notre Dame was not to teach all the people, but only to transmit certain ideas to a few men through the 
space of time. Modern science conquers space within the limits of the surface of the small earth. Esoteric science has conquered time, and it knows methods of transferring its ideas intact and of establishing communications between schools through hundreds and thousands of years. 1922. So for the sake of those who may not be as familiar with uh, Ospensky and his whole story um, as I am, I'll, I'll offer a few pieces of commentary here. One thing that's very confusing, uh, can be confusing for people when they are reading Ospensky is his use of the term schools. So he talks about um, esoteric schools, and, and that's what he kind of like devoted his life to, the um, articulation over and construction of esoteric schools, schools that possess and pass along a certain kind of knowledge. Um, and he studies them throughout. Many of, of Ospensky's writings are based on um, his historical studies of schools like this, and as well um, his experiences in schools like this, um, mainly under... Uh, Gurdjieff, and also his own attempts to perpetuate the tradition of esoteric schools. So often when he says schools, he's referring to esoteric schools, but sometimes he's referring to conventional schools. So um, in, in the essay where he says, um, he talks about uh, history passes in full view, and it's strictly, it's really considered the history of crime. For if there were no, were no crimes, there'd be no history. And he talks about all the murders and violence and wars and rebellions and stuff. And he says, this is one history, the history which everybody knows. It's the history which is taught in schools. And when he says school, he just says schools there. But what he, um, the way we would interpret this in the modern world uh, would be, uh, public schools or universities, um, the government-influenced and in in many cases mandatory uh, schools that everyone is forced to go to, where you are taught the history of crime, murder, violence, wars, rebellions, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what he's referring to as conventional schools, um, and and. These are not to be confused with what he means when he talks about esoteric schools, which is an entirely different thing. And he's making the case that Notre Dame, uh, the, the architectural knowledge behind, or be, behind the construction of Notre Dame was completed by people who ultimately came from esoteric schools or had knowledge coming from esoteric schools. Also, there's a part where he talks a lot about certain uh, certain features of Notre Dame, which I mean, I mean, I don't even know if those are around now. <laughs> I don't know if those exist anymore, based on what um, I've seen from the images of the destruction that's taken place there. But he talks about uh, when he talks about these figures of the soul of Notre Dame, it's different eyes, and he's talking about one place um, uh, around the buttresses that uh, where there's lots of faces and heads uh, coming out of it. And, and what he's talking about here is the idea of multiple eyes, which is a key idea in, in, in Gurdjieff's philosophy. And then when, when you encounter it there, you see it exists in all these other places too. And it's where there's just multiple heads, multiple faces, like coming out of a, a, a conglomerate that all have like, you know, they're all 
you know, basically committing to different things. This is also probably somewhere where the idea of like um, the the seven deadly sins come from. Is that what the seven deadly sins really represent? Is different features of one person. See, we always have a wrong understanding of this. Now we have the idea that it's all you know that that there, each one is a different sin and and each one is a thing that attacks like the person individually, but. Uh, really, the older idea is that each of these are aspects of an eye that comes out of an individual. And as an individual, you begin observing these features in yourself. And through that, you um, start to become more aware of yourself. Now, even Anton LaVey touches on this when he says the seven deadly sins are not really um, deadly. They're all like good for you in some way because they lead to your health in some way. So he, in, in a weird way, Anton LaVey was kind of tapping on this same Gurdjieffian idea. There's actually a lot of things that LaVey kind of taps onto that are actually very Gurdjieffian. Um, you know, being bald and having facial hair is one of them. Um, the other thing is that the, his philosophy is uh, ultimately Aristotelian and materialism-based. But this is a similar idea that, you know, if you, if you take away the um, moral judgment against these, the, the sins and you just take them as these are features of my personality which emerge uh, from time to time and I become aware of them and I start to look for them. It gives me an anchor for stopping and becoming aware of myself for a moment. You become aware of myself when I'm being gluttonous. I'd be aware of myself when I'm being covetous or when I'm, um, you know, being lustful. If you reprogram yourself to see these features as being uh, anchors to remind you of yourself in a conscious sense, in a sense of your, the, the, the totality of your being, then they can become tools for your work towards awakening. And so Osminski's uh, making an observation here that you can see this idea, which is from a older system um, that is based on initiatory understandings. Later on, a very touching part of this is when he talks about, you know, he was looking at Notre Dame for the last time and, and reflecting on these things and having a deep, profound sense of this. And then this is as he was like leaving to go to India. And and then he, uh, then there's a break, and he says, eight years pass before I saw Notre Dame again." And so, what happens during that time period? And that's where he goes off on his searches to the east. And this is part of Ospensky's story. He left and he went to the east in search of esoteric knowledge. He was a theosophist. He was a theosophist and a, and a mathematician, and he was convinced that there must be these esoteric schools out there. There must be places where people actually have knowledge still. And so he went to the East searching it. And he talks about some of his adventures there in, in some of the essays in here also. But what happened in the big picture of this is he didn't find anything. He, he didn't find the esoteric schools. And he came back after many years to... Um, Europe, not to Europe, to uh, Russia, uh, St. Petersburg, I, I believe, is, is where he came back. And, and he was convinced that if either there are no such thing as esoteric schools, or if there are esoteric schools that still exist in the East, they are, keep, they are kept strictly hidden from Westerners. 
um, that the real knowledge is not allowed to Westerners. They just give us some uh, fake knowledge to entertain us and sell trinkets and books and, and, and stuff like that. And you can make the case for that even today. I, I feel quite firmly if you go into any yoga or uh, New Age store, um, this is all stuff that's being marketed for wealthy housewives for the most part and, 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 and to some extent uh, youth subculture. And there's almost no real esoteric knowledge in it. But Ospensky came back convinced that it's, it's either not there or it's not accessible. And he gave up and he returned to a secular life, writing for the newspaper, being a mathematician, and getting ready to go to World War I. And the Bolshevik Revolution starts taking place here. And he gets drafted. And right when this all happens... He finds out about, through a strange course of events, which you can read about in the book In Search of the Miraculous, where he chronicles his experiences with Gurdjieff. Right when all that is about to happen, he discovers Gurdjieff. And all of a sudden, he realized that it is possible that the knowledge existed and that it has survived into modern times. And because he uh, became convinced that Gurdjieff had a special kind of knowledge because his ideas were not um, in any way connected with any of the other uh, occultish and, and new agey things that were happening during his time. Um, they seemed to have that air of authenticity and they were substantial, even super substantial in their nature. And the other very touching thing about this passage is when he comes back after the eight years. And, and this is the time after he comes back, after he spent all this time with Gurdjieff, he came back and he finished this essay. That's, that's the story of this book, New Model of the Universe. They're all essays that he started before he went to the East, gave up, and, and met Gurdjieff, and then went and studied with him for a few years and you know, avoided destruction in World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution. And then he came back and he finished these essays. And he, and he visits Notre Dame again. And he says, it seems that something has changed in Notre Dame as though it was beginning to have a presentiment of its approaching end. And I'm going to leave it to you whether you want to take that as being uh, prophetic or some sort of precognition about what happened to Notre Dame two days ago, and whether or not the destruction of that is in any way connected with the loss of legitimate esoteric knowledge in the West, because there's a tremendous campaign against it. Um, I could talk about the anti-conspiracy um, hysteria that's flowing through uh, the social media worlds right now, how YouTube is, is demonetizing, daily demonetizing and taking the voice away, you know, from, you know, uh, there's extreme examples. Everyone wants to point to the extreme example of Alex Jones and, and people like that. But there's a, lo a lot of other people that are getting demonetized and having their voices taken away for nothing more than asking questions that are forbid forbidden. Forbidden questions. Everyone should be so concerned that the idea of forbidden questions is being 
reincorporated into the status quo on a on a colossal scale um, questions that are forbidden you have to remember that all of these sorts of inquiries begin with a question man must be free to question uh, must be free to question the status quo so with that my friends and fellow daemons I'm going to say don't only keep those dark fires burning but hang on to the knowledge and look deeply within yourself and find the courage which is a a form of fire and the courage to continue to question all things and may that question continue to guide you on your search for the super substantial through the dark times that now lie before us. <laughs>